You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, the year is 1918, and a regiment of the United States Army's 77th Division has broken through the enemy lines in the forest of Argonne, about 100 miles east of Paris. Now, this quickly turned into a major issue as the unit had outrun the American front line and were now surrounded on all sides by the German army. Pinned down for days in the dense fog of the French forest, Major Charles Whittlesley and his men were taking fire and urgently calling for aid from their commander. Now, in 1918, communication was not the same as it is today. You couldn't just send a text to the general. You had to lay telephone wire back through the thick forest or send a soldier back with a message, very dangerous, or you had to use one of the six army-supplied carrier pigeons. And so they sent bird after bird with messages tied to their little legs with desperate messages for reinforcements or air support. The U.S. Army didn't know where they were. In fact, as U.S. planes flew over top of them, they thought they were German troops. And so they were bombing their own men. The messages got more and more desperate. Please, for heaven's sake, stop bombing us. On the third day, with enemy pressure escalating to include flamethrowers, they were down to just two birds. It was now or never. They released the pigeon. The thing flew and landed in a tree like 10 feet away. The guys were like, go, go. Finally, the bird flew away. Along the route to headquarters, they could see in the distance. The pigeon actually got shot through the chest. It was blinded in one eye. It was mangled, but the thing kept flying. It made it to the headquarters. Their commander read the message, and he made plans to send reinforcements to his men. Two days later, the lost battalion was rescued, and they went down in history. Well, in our text this morning, in Psalm 70, we see the psalmist pinned down by enemies that are seeking his life, and he's calling for aid from his heavenly commander. And he asks him to hurry up, make haste, come quickly, do not delay. So today we're going to walk through three things. First, what the text says what it says about David's crisis. Second, we'll look at how it points us to Jesus. And third, why it matters for us. What the text says, how it points to Jesus, and why it matters for us. Before we dive in, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, I am poor and needy. We are poor and needy. More than we even know. But you are great. 
You are our help and our deliverer. So do not delay this morning. We ask, would you come now by your spirit? Would you give us a deeper gladness, a deeper rejoicing, a deeper love for your deliverance, for your rescue, for your salvation in the gospel as we seek to know you through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. All right, well, let's begin with what the text says. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and look at Psalm 70, verse 1. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Right away, we can see, we know David, he's on the run. He needs help. He's cornered. I mean, literally, it reads, God to deliver me, Lord to my help, hurry. You probably know, David's one of the more famous characters in the Bible. You probably know that in several moments in David's life, he was literally on the run. And uh, this happened when he was a younger man. It also happened when he was an older man. When he was younger, it was Saul and the entire army chasing David and a few of his men all around the countryside. David's hiding in caves and foxholes as the heir to the kingdom. But also it happened to David when he was older. Uh, His own son, Absalom, was chasing David. David went back to the caves, and he was on the run, and he had Absalom and the traitors after him trying to steal the crown. Either way, the theme here is speed. You can see it, right? David needs help, like, right now. Four times in five verses, David is talking about speed. Make haste, O God. Make haste. Hasten to me, O God, verse 5. O Lord, do not delay. Right now. Here they come, God. I need help quick. I don't have time for 28 verses and two choruses. There ain't no Selahs in this psalm. This is a telegram. This is a telegram to his commanding officer. He's calling for aid. The enemy is at the gates. He can see the whites of their eyes. They're coming, and they're mocking, and they're laughing, and they are pumped to tear him limb from limb, and they're going to enjoy it. The situation is dire. Now, let's just look a little bit closer at what David's enemies want to do. Look at verses 2 and 3. They're seeking his life. They're delighting in his hurt. And they're laughing at him. They're saying, aha, aha. Now, that's kind of like LOL. Aha, aha. They're laughing at him. There's nothing worse than people laughing when you get hurt. But they want to kill him and laugh at him. But... Now, know what David prays for if in this situation. No, look at what he prays for. What he doesn't pray for is super strength. Right? He, he doesn't pray that God would give him super strength so that he can bust out of the cave like Clark Kent coming out of the phone booth, even though he might have wanted to do that. He doesn't pray for that. He asks God to deliver him. Three times, 
Look at verses 2 and 3. Three times he says, let them, let them, let them. He's relying on God to deliver him from his plight. Let them be turned back. Translation, please turn them back, God. You have to do it. You have to be my help and my deliverer. I can't do it. I'm poor and needy. I don't ha- I'm not in my palace. I don't have Goliath's sword with me. I don't have all my guys. David has been stripped of his sources of strength and power. His true situation before the Lord is made clear. He's poor and needy. He needs help. God has to be the one to deliver him. But this is really interesting. He also thinks beyond himself in this moment. It's very hard to think about something other than yourself if you're in a cave with people that you can see that want to kill you. That's pretty much probably going to be the only thing on your mind. But in, this, in verse 4, we see David, he, he starts thinking about other people. He moves outward from himself, hurry God, to his problems, deal with them, God. And then he lands on his friends. Or more specifically, on those who seek God. May all who seek you. On those who seek God instead of seeking his life. In the foxhole, taking bullets from the enemy, David is praying for the deep joy and gladness of God's people. For God's glory. That God would be praised. This is what's on David's mind. Look at the contrast. If you look at two and three and then four, look at the contrast between David's enemies David's enemies on this side, and then David's friends. David's enemies seek my life for death. David's friends seek God for life. David's enemies delight in his harm. David's friends delight in God. They rejoice in God. David's enemies say, ha-ha, in mockery. David's friends say, God is great in worship. What a contrast. How do we, how do we get from this to this? Well, speaking of going from enemies to friends, let's look now at how, how this psalm points us to the real hero, Jesus. So as we put on another set of glasses, we're going to look at this psalm again, but let's try to hear Jesus' voice in this psalm. Listen for it in these glimpses in the gospel accounts that echo Psalm 70. So I'm going to read a few passages from the New Testament that echo this psalm, show us, show us Jesus' voice in this psalm. So how this points us to Jesus. Well, we know Jesus was no stranger to enemies seeking his life, right? I mean, this happened to him basically since he became into public view. But near the end of his life, you see, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as soldiers and traitors are stalking him in the night. Mark 14. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Make haste, God, to deliver me, Jesus says. I am poor and needy, but you are my help and my deliverer. You hear the echo? Let's look at another one. Jesus, once he gets into the hands of the soldiers, Matthew 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him, to kill him. They seek my life. They delight in my hurt. They laugh at me. They mock me. Now, even in the midst of this, at the worst moment, Jesus now on the cross, David has the same turn of mind. Jesus has the same turn of mind as David. When David goes from thinking about himself to thinking about his problems to thinking about his friends, David, Jesus has that same turn of mind. On the cross itself, Luke 23, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do and they cast lots to divide his garments. So David, we know David is praying that God would deal with his enemies in verses two and three. But Jesus goes a head whirling step further. He prays that God would deal with his enemies by forgiving them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. This is like crazy mercy. This blows our minds. We don't forgive people when they're actively murdering us. This, this mercy cannot be anything else but coming from outside of the world. This is wholly other. This is not human mercy. This is divine mercy. This is mercy that comes into this world to heal a broken world, to heal broken people like you and me. But we also see Jesus love for his friends during his great moment of need. In John 19, Jesus still on the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus on the cross, in excruciating pain, is thinking about other people. He's loving his friends. And in all of his troubles, Jesus looks to his father, his deliverer. Uh, Peter writes a letter later, so this is in 1 Peter 2, about these moments. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Jesus suffered for you. He suffered for you. He bore your sins, my sins, in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin, that we would be dead to it, that we would not do it anymore, that we would not run to it anymore, that we would be dead to sin. And instead, we would live to righteousness. We would live to seek God, seek joy in God. But Peter also says that Jesus left us an example that we might follow in his steps. So let's close now by considering why this psalm matters for us. There's several applications we could take from this text. Let me just quickly suggest four. First, ask yourself, how do you respond to highly stressful problems in your life? Think about the—maybe you're in one right now. Maybe you just came out of one. Ask yourself, how did you respond when that happened? When it felt like you were likely to be overcome and overwhelmed, when you didn't see a way out, how did you respond? Pastor Dane Ortland, in his excellent devotional on uh, the Psalms, on this one, he, he said this, there are two and only two basic approaches to life. We can attempt to handle life's adversities through self-resourced deliverance or through looking outside of ourselves for deliverers, for deliverance. We can look in or we can look out. On what do you rely moment by moment? Psalm 70 teaches us to rely on God alone for deliverance in every circumstance but especially the bad ones. Hurry, God, please help me. Second, we learn not to take vengeance against our perceived enemies into our own hands. We see this from both David and Jesus. Rather, we stop and we ask God to deal with them. In fact, we can follow Jesus' example by going one step further and actually pray for them. Pray for your enemy. Father, stop them. We can say that. Father, stop them. Stop this. Help me. Show them their shame. But forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. To the extent that you are persecuted or oppressed, harassed or discriminated against as a Christian, 
let's remember that we're not lone wolves here. We're not solo holy warriors. If there's a war for culture, our fighting should not look like the fighting of the world because we can call for heavenly aid. We're not out in the woods by ourselves. Send out the telegram. Third, when you are stuck, when you're in the pit, this is counterintuitive, remembering others, like thinking about other people and going beyond just thinking about them, but actually actively praying for them, it's a great way to get out of the pit. I tell you how, you not, how, how to not get out of the pit. Throw the biggest pity party. Just have a huge pity party session and pout. And just see how long it takes to get out of the pit. You're just going to go deeper and deeper and deeper. I've been there. I know. It doesn't work. If you just think about your problems and you just think and think and think and think and think about yourself and your problems over and over and over again, you're going to get nowhere. But David shows us here and Jesus shows us that if you actually get your mind off of yourself and think about your spouse or your roommate or your neighbor or your friend or your brother or your sister, this is a secret. It's a secret of joy. Desire someone else's joy and you get joy. It's better to give than to receive, Jesus says. And what do we pray for? Pray, pray Psalm 70 for him. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Pray for their joy and gladness in a happy God. Pray that your life group, your community group, your spouse, your roommate, your neighbor, Pray that they would see Jesus, that they would love the gospel, that they'd be amazed at the rescue that Jesus has won for us, and that they would praise him, saying evermore, God is great, every morning. Pray that they would say God is great this morning, that they would be happy in God. Lastly, we should press into the tension between verses 4 and 5. Look at that again. God is great, but I am poor and needy. God is great, but I am poor and needy. The less that we see the distance between those two statements, the more pride and self-sufficiency will be our default mode of dealing with life's problems. Does that make sense? The less we see the distance between those statements, God is pretty good. I am, you know, actually, I'm, I'm doing okay. We won't even pray to the extent that those, those statements get a little bit closer in our minds. But when we read the Bible, the chasm between those two statements 
becomes very clear. When we read the Bible, we see humanity literally on every single page. You see humans that are small, that are failures, that are corrupt, that are ugly. And that's us. We are poor and needy. But we also see coming down from heaven the greatness and the beauty and the excellence and the justice of God. And we see that most clearly in the face of Jesus. I think it can be really easy for us to slip into the mindset of the church in Revelation 3. You guys remember Laodicea? They said, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. You might not say that with your words. I might not say that with my, wor- with, with my explicit words. But I think that. Do you think that sometimes? I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. But Jesus says, I, I see you. This is how I see you, Jesus says. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not too impressive. Our true state before God is complete and utter helplessness. We are poor and needy. But here's the amazing thing. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were poor and needy, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to crawl out of the pit. He knows you can't get out. He came down in the pit to get you. And he stayed down there. He pushed you out and he stayed in. He let them cover the top of the pit with soil. He died in the pit to get you out. This is incredible love. And this love leads us to the table. At this table, we remember that Jesus made haste to deliver us at the cross. He hurried to our rescue. He wasn't rushed, but he came quickly. At the proper time, Christ died for the ungodly like you and me. He himself was put to shame and confusion, like this psalm says. He laid down his life amidst mockery and laughter so that we could laugh in the face of death itself. Where, O death, is your sting? Remember, this is important. This prayer that David prays and that Jesus prayed did not go unanswered. The pigeon found the commander. God answered this prayer. God answered this prayer for David. David ascended to the throne 
in Israel. He returned to the throne in Israel. He got out of the cave. The Lord delivered him. And he answered Jesus' prayer too. Our worst enemies, sin, death, and the devil, were ultimately humiliated. They were humiliated. Jesus mocked them as he rose in victory. And he's reigning now. And one day he's going to come back. And so we can pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for these truths that remind us that we are poor and needy, but you are great. And your love for us is great. And Jesus has gone to the depths for us to rescue us from the pit, to rescue us from the cave, to be our help and our deliverer. Would you remind us when we are in crises to look for you, to look to you alone for help and deliver us, to, rem- to remind us that we cannot do it on our own. We praise you for your grace to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, at this table, we recognize our poverty and the richness of Christ's generosity towards us. And so if you have trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sin and life everlasting, we, if he is truly your help and deliverer, we invite you to eat and drink with us. But if you aren't there yet, that's okay. Feel free to let the bread and cup pass. But don't let the moment pass. Take Christ instead. If you have questions on what it means to trust in Jesus, several folks will be up front after the service. We'd love to talk uh, and, and pray with you. Now, the pastors will come and distribute the bread. Hold it, and we'll eat together. His body is true bread. Let us serve you.